Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. What we need to do now is pull leaders together and figure out how do we lead as custodians of this world and as leaders of humanity and not just as leaders of our companies. And that's the radical shift that needs to happen, right? And I think that's what's so hard is as an executive, you were promoted and you rose to power because you could deliver on numbers. You could deliver on bottom line results. As a futurist and humanist, Caroline Chubb Calderon thinks a lot about what it will mean to be human in the age of intelligent machines. This child of the world that grew up speaking five languages and learned what it means to be human at an early age from a mentally ill mother and an inspirational father gives us a glimpse into how we might just reimagine the future of humanity. In part two of this interview, we explore Caroline's perspective on how we recapture our humanity, the imperative for businesses to invest in helping people rediscover their humanity, to lead as custodians of this world and lead for humanity, the wisdom we need to develop what it means to be human and the empathy to be able to hear other people. We discuss her perspective on the forces that are shaping our future, the possibilities and risks in an AI-driven world, and the need for a global moral compass, and so much more. I hope you enjoy part two of this optimistic but contemplative exploration of humanity in the age of AI technology. Before we started the interview, we were just talking about the the reality of where AI is at the moment. I think mo- many of us don't even realise the impact that artificial intelligence and machine learning is having on our lives at the moment right. in terms of the the decisions we make, that we are outsourcing so mm-hmm. much of our life direction to mm-hmm. the machines, particularly through our connectivity to, to mobile devices, mm-hmm. whether it be um, the decisions we make in terms of the quantified self for our, mm-hmm. our exercise, our diet, mm-hmm. our sleep, which are all positive things, mm-hmm. but dating. You know, who should we be with? The the impact that, obviously, we we all f- abundantly familiar with the impact of filter bubbles and what's happening in terms mm-hmm. of our belief systems and through social media. Can you just talk about that challenge that we face as humans in reclaiming our own humanity from what currently is sucking us in to, I don't know what you call it, but it's, it feels like we're being drawn into the machine and uh, uh, losing our humanity through mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah. For me, it's a, I, I love technology and I love right. a lot of what I'm discussing yeah. and, and using all these apps and things. Right. But at the same time, the, there is something that mm-hmm. is deeply worrying. And I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. I would yeah. love your perspective on this. I have a, probably a very unusual perspective on this. And um, it comes from my meditation. I think the most dramatic thing that we can do for all of us is to learn to step out of the trance. Mm-hmm. The and there's and I'm going to answer the question you asked me two two questions yeah. ago. You asked, you know, how can leaders, you know, push against these forces that are m- moving us to making decisions that are profit driven as yes. opposed to organ- uh, humanity humanitarianly driven. We've got to have courage, and we have to develop courage, and we've got to move out of the trance. So as leaders, you have to have courage to step away and push against the forces that are uh, dictating that you make decisions for short-term profitability and and in 
instead favor decisions that are for the ultimate benefit of humanity because actually that is long-term profitability that I can tell you more about that second in another moment but and then the second thing for all of us is learning to step outside the trance and that requires deep work to move from a reactive to a responsive moment, to move from trance behavior to intentional behavior. Because machines are going to become ever more capable to define who you are, what you think of, who you meet, how you are, what you do moment to moment. And I think we need to do a lot more inner development to decide that for ourselves, to def- to decide what it is that we really want to be doing right now. How do we want to engage with this machine? How do we, is this machine living up to the values that we understand about ourselves? And I think at that same event that you were at at Google, yeah. John Havens asked a beautiful question, which is, when were you asked the last time what your values were? And do you know them? And most of us don't think about that. And uh, we need to become far more intentional at living from that place as opposed to being lived by our machines. I think that just building on that, um, I've heard you, I don't know if it was an event or I read that you said in an age of bots, algorithms and AI are only competitive advantages to become more human. Mm. And that's why you're focused on advancing these qualities of what you're calling human intelligence. Mm-hmm. How do we practically do that though? Yeah. What steps can we take as individuals, let alone organizations, mm-hmm. to start to develop these this hum, this human intelligence? Yeah. So that quote speaks specifically to the future of humanity. Yeah. Um, because when bots and algorithms take over the labor of our jobs, uh, we've got to look at where humans uh, have comp- competencies that machines have a much harder time mm-hmm. replicating or embodying. And those competencies in the human intelligence space that I was that you correctly mentioned are threefold. There are three pillar competencies. The first is imagination, the second is insight, and the third is inspiration. And uh, so when you ask what can we specifically do to enhance human intelligence, first of all, we need to reckon with the fact that most everything we do could be replaced by machines, mm-hmm. and that the only domains that are outside of that our imagination, insight, and inspiration. So first I just ask you to entertain that question and see if you land in the same place that I did. You could argue, you know, rational reasoning and all that, but that could actually be algorithmically created. No, no, totally. Um, So, all right, so then how do we enhance imagination? Imagination is a set of additional skills. Um, One of it is curiosity. So, you know, engineering moments of unstructured time and living in that moment with the widest lens of curiosity that you can have and seeing what comes to you, just like I, you know, I, I was sharing with you when I studied in schools. Yeah, okay, a little bit of a book nerd, but mostly it was because of the beauty of those explosions of insights that were inside of my mind that connected one thing to another to another and just let my mind go, right? So one is learning the, 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 the architecture of curiosity, and there's, there's frameworks to that. Um, another one is connecting to nature because it has um, neuroscientifically been shown to release endorphins in your mind that open your, there's a sphincter in your brain that connects the right 
the right hemisphere to the mm -hmm. left hemisphere. So it opens that sphincter, it puts you in theta brainwaves, and theta brainwaves um, allow for greater creativity. So let's do more of that intentionally. Let's not see nature as this moment of um, escapism, but actually is a requirement for understanding our own humanity. Those are just some examples. Then you go into insight, and insight is really the eth understanding the ethical and moral compass and reasoning by which you make everyday decisions. And none of us do enough work for that. So it's it's doing the inner exploration of that. So under you know one place to start, which is very common, is uh, understanding your values. You know. We're having a circular conversation, but understanding your values and what that means for you and how you exhibit those values and how you can lead from that place. Another one is do is becoming trained and understand mindfulness because as I mentioned to you, moving from transposition to intentional position is kind of what we need to really get good at. And then when you look at inspiration, inspiration is twofold. It's about the leadership capacities to paint a visionary future, but also create a communities of people who can come together um, and be human together. And that's that, that piece of community we're losing with our digital lifestyles. And so we need more leaders who can paint a visionary picture and build community. And those are specific leadership skills of peacemaking, of visionary thinking, long-tail visionary thinking, um, of um, creating movements. There's a whole lot of research on how you create movements as a leader, and also how you create uh, trust and build community. And that's what we need to do. And safety, right? Mm. Um, back to safety. God, so many questions <laughs> spring to my mind when you're talking about that. A couple of observations. Mm. The nature one, which I'm totally with you on. I, I'm a runner, and I get my best ideas on two occasions. One, when I wake. Obviously, you're mm -hmm. coming out of theta, beta mm -hmm. into beta sort mm -hmm. of state. And, uh, and the other is when I'm running and mm -hmm. out in nature, mm -hmm. in Central Park mm -hmm. or in Scotland or in London, mm -hmm. in Hampstead Heath. And there's something about that. Why? Yeah. And I never really understood why ideas come to me then. Usually when I'm switched off, not with running with headphones on or listening to podcasts or music, right. just literally out there. So there is something very, very powerful in that. The other is I'm reading a book at the moment called Why We Sleep. I don't know if you've read no, it. Oh my goodness, you're going to love it. Yeah? <laughs> it's the most impactful book um, and it really deconstructs in incredible with scientific detail. These are the leading sleep scientists in the world. But it, it breaks down into the both the, the psychological, the sort of neurological and the physiological reasons why we need to sleep. Yeah. And the impact that everything around sleep has it that is the foundational element that drives our creativity, our mm -hmm. ability to regenerate, mm -hmm. to restore retain mm -hmm. uh, ideas. Long term thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you think Thank about and the reason I'm mentioning it is just it, it for me it's one of the, the biggest issues when we talk about mental wellness, where we talk about uh, social impact in society. People that are we're getting less and less sleep today mm -hmm. because of our devices, either having them in in the bedroom with you or being connected, or late at night, or kids are. I think in the U.S. something like forty five minutes over the last ten to fifteen years less sleep because mm -hmm. of devices and technology. It's an hour. That's having not just individual effect on their dopamine levels, their mm -hmm. serotonin levels, but their impact of family life school life and ultimately society right. there's a collective societal negative yeah. impact of that when yeah. you just look at that one factor alone so when you talk about these things i think it's a it's brilliant i love it that 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 conversation is happening mm. 
sleep for me because of reading this book I think that has become f- forced into the narrative yeah. of all conversations we're having with parents right. with leaders managers team leaders whatever you call it and, and so, it goes back to what I said earlier which is we have been defining human worth by what we achieve mm-hmm. and not who we are and if you point to all the things that you just mentioned about the beauty of sleep that it um well, the inverse yeah. is connection with family, connection with people, uh, capacity to imagine, all of that. That is not doing and achieving yes. by natural standards and norms. That is deep, resonant humanity. And what I'm trying to say in all the work that I'm doing is there is so much that needs to be reimagined. Down to what do we value? Down to why do we have these constructs um, in our society that prioritize things that we know at the end of the day are negative and harmful for us and are not prioritizing those things that at the end of the day we all long for and at the end of the day are going to be our greatest advantage in the age of machines. So at the end of the day, that's our, that's our, yeah. biggest, that's our biggest challenge. And what I'm saying is it's a challenge, but there is no alternative. This is the moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if we can really ride that mo- ride this moment, ride this moment of great reckoning, we can actually reshape the future of humanity and to, to, be the, to be that utmost vision that we all hold and we long for. Just one practical question that you, you must encounter when you're dealing with anything that's future focused is the, is the impact of the, the present imperative of profit. Mm-hmm. particularly in organizations dealing with quarterly earnings mm-hmm. results. And even mm-hmm. if you're dealing with inspirational leaders, there still must be that tension yeah. that you uh, encounter. How do we break that cycle? Because, as you said, right. it's long-term profit. Right. Profit not in the sense of just money, but our survival yeah. as humanity. Yeah. I've been dealing with that question for a long time. Because imagine back in 2000s, talking to an organization saying, you really need to create an innovation culture and allow for experimentation. And you don't know if these experiments are going to lead to profitability or loss. You're just going to have to do it. And the the answer was, but we have to deliver our quarterly yeah. earnings, right? We don't have any extra you know, juice in the pipe to be able to do these kinds of things. And we can't deploy people. Well, if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is if you don't, but it, but the, then what's going to happen to you? This is where it must be interesting in terms of the the characteristics and from your psycholo- psychology background, the characteristics of the people you're dealing with, because there must be people saying, yeah, it's not going to be on my watch, though. Mm. If you look at the average tenure of a C-suite individual, yeah. they probably go, yeah, we're, we want to be seen to be doing this. Right. But. It's, see, that's why you have to work with early movers. You know, I I... You know, I had conversations about the culture Google was trying to create before Google became a thing. And um, and what I'm trying to say in all of this work is you can't afford not to. Mic drop. I'll leave it there. Like, yeah. that, like can't, you can't it, afford yeah. not to. Um, just like you couldn't afford not to invest in people back when it was all about operations. You can't afford not to invest in innovation back when it was all about, you know, short-term profitability. You can't afford not to invest in the future of humanity and are the long-term, a multi-generational impact of your work because you're going to be dead. Uh-huh. Your, your, your company is going to fail. And did you want me to go into that a little more about why the economics of that? Yeah, I think that would be interesting. <coughs> yeah. So the economics of that, I mean, there's a lot of them, but one that I can just point my finger on e- that mm. seems to be easier to digest is the, um, 
the real craving that comes from replacing humans with machines, right? There's a, a real, and there's a, a big business, a huge business case for replacing uh, mostly blue collar workers at this moment in time, because that's what we can do uh, with robots and machines. And, um, and you can, you certainly can. But if even just a small percentage of people do that, uh, of organizations do that, we're going to have mass unemployments on our hands. And our government is not prepared to absorb the um, the swaths of people that are going to be yeah. displaced. And we don't have a societal way of retraining them right now. Um, so you now have mass unemployment. Mass unemployment leads to more governmental initiatives, you know, redirected cash, which destabilizes all of society. But then in addition to that, you have people who can't consume because they don't have money to consume. So now they don't have money to consume. So now industries are falling and industries are falling. We have more unemployment, more unemployment, less consumption. Bottom line, this is, you know, it's shooting yourself. It's a race to the bottom. Yeah. You're shooting yourself in the foot. So that's why I'm saying what we need to do now is pull leaders together and figure out how do we lead as custodians of this world and as leaders of humanity and not just as leaders of our companies. And that's the radical shift that needs to happen, right? And I think that's what's so hard is as an executive, you were promoted and you rose to power because you could deliver on numbers, you could deliver on bottom line results. Nobody has ever been trained or rose to power because they could deliver for humanity. And that's what needs to happen now. So it's a pretty radical shift. That has to be a collective uh, narrative. It can't be just the responsibility of one visionary CEO in one, regardless, even if it's a, a behemoth organization like Amazon or, or yeah. Google or. Yeah, yeah. They can't, they alone, they can be leaders, they can be the create the siren call for that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, this has to come from ideally in, enlightened leadership in government that mm -hmm. ultimately have to be the ones that are driving that narrative, mm -hmm. collecting. Now, maybe it comes from the UN. Maybe, I, I mean, I know that the World Economic Forum are mm -hmm. working with the OECD on mm -hmm. the launch of the DQ initiative. Mm -hmm. I'm involved with the DQ Oh, yeah, so I was well, with I'm, Joan. I'm going to speak yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, great. So, and I think that's wonderful. I think, you know, we have this conversation. We're preaching to the converted. Anyone that's listening right. to this is going to be going, yeah, nodding their head in agreement. Mm -hmm. But the reality is most people in this country and mm -hmm. even in the UK, you're dealing with high levels of employment. The, the numbers mm -hmm. have never looked better. The economy is actually doing okay. Mm -hmm. Reality, of course, is the, the the harsh reality on the ground is people might be in work, but they're living on minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Their money's going isn't going as anywhere near as far as it was mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we are potentially at a point where we're about to have this car crash, a cataclysmic crash, financial mm -hmm. crash, that will probably accelerate the situation that you're talking about because it's it, it's overdue. We we know it's been ten years, so and we all know that markets live uh, are driven by confidence and irrationality. Mm. So when this happens, and we do have a financial crash and people are laid off, mm. we're going to have a societal problem. We're going to have unrest like we didn't see in 2008. And organizations and governments will react and invest in finding ways to continue profiting. So the thing I'm struggling with is looking forward with optimism of how we can avert the outcome of what is inevitable being an even 
bigger separation of society of those that have and have not, and an increasing impact of uh, the militarization of the police. You just look at it when you go out mm. in the streets, and it's pretty shocking. You know, they're, they're, it's very peaceful, but you look and think if there was some form of social unrest, it mm. could be brutal. You're touching on so many different points. I know, I know. That's, I probably won't even put this bit in the podcast because it's just it's terrifying that, you know, how can we... You know, what you're saying is is such an imperative. I can't imagine Boris Johnson is sitting awake at night going, right, um, how do we ensure that we reorientate the education system to get away from the old 19th, 20th century curriculum to prepare our children, to instill in them the, the imagination, the insight and the inspirational capabilities they mm. need to succeed in a machine-driven future? Part of the challenge is that we are driven by the now, right? And everything seems on fire. Uh-huh. And so it comes back to some of the wisdom that we need to develop is, first of all, how to help people come back to the fundamentals of what it means to be human. Because the civil unrest that we're seeing, by my assessment, and I very tenderly and humbly say it's my assessment, is very much driven by the unintended consequence of us going down the wormhole of what matters to us and losing our capacity to hear other people. And it's driven by social media, it's driven by the nature of our of a day-to-day life. So it's, it's the, I'm becoming more individualistic. By nature, the more individualistic we become, the less capable we are to see the other, le- not as another, but as a extension of who I am or a, you know, a person that I belong to and feed with and live with naturally. The second thing is we are so driven by the urgency of now mm-hmm. that we are just focused on delivering this moment and dealing with this fire. And it's a very reactive mentality. And I, I truly believe that if we could take a collective breath and assess what really matters to us, and understand, be more intentional about understanding how we are being shaped by our by our context mm. to be less human because we are being less. We are the way that the Center for Humane Technology deci- yeah. describes it is downgrading of humanity. Like if we can understand how we are being downgraded in our humanity and intentionally counter those forces, which is what we're trying to do with Hello Humanity, intentionally counter those forces. I actually think we can. We must, we can redirect, mm-hmm. right? There's no alternative. It's just, you were just gonna see more of it if we don't. So we need more people to take part. And like I invited everybody in that conference, become an agent of humanity mm-hmm. to say, I am not going to fall prey to the dynamics that are sur- surrounding me, but I'm going to be intentional about cultivating my humanity and intentional about being a leader for the future of humanity and intentional about um, how I interact with the forces of technology and intentional about reclaiming imagination, insight, inspiration as my core skills and intentional about reaching out to mm. understand who you are and how I can help you feel loved and safe and belong. So not to allow me to drag this into a negative dystopian place, mm. can you talk about some of the positive steps you're seeing being taken by leaders in, in industry mm. without naming obviously organizational names? that are showing examples of how they are maybe continuing to invest in artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, for 
positive benefit, but to then reframe their human resources mm -hmm. to inject in them the, those qualities of imagination, mm -hmm. insight, and inspiration. There's not a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. So there's an intention, but it's not really working out uh, flawlessly. So there's uh, companies that have come together and created consortiums, right, to try to define what this future is. Mm -hmm. um, there is uh, universities that have come together and, and decided, you know, Stanford is one, MIT is one, where they've, they've come together to try to define ways that we can shape this future um, and set, set a precedent, set, set a directive, a guideline. Um, there's not enough being done. It needs to be done at like 360 degrees mm -hmm. around the world. And then there's some, you know, and, and truthfully, the conversations that I'm having with leaders today are very uh, existential, but they're also practical in nature, such as, you know, how do I wrestle with this fact that I could implement this AI tomorrow, but then 200,000 people will lose their jobs. I, I can't have that on my soul. How do yeah. I do that? And so part of the work that I'm doing is shaping what that path, what a promising path looks like. Well, how do you re-educate? How do you redeploy? How do you think about your role in society that goes beyond delivering on this product or service? Mm -hmm. How do we move outside of the frame, out of that frame? So, you know, there are not a lot of examples, but there's, at the end of the day, we're all human. And... I believe that when you can speak to an executive the way that you and I are speaking, mm -hmm. the best of their humanity starts unfolding and there's conscience, there's intentionality behind their work that often gets kind of stuffed and put aside, but that gets re-aroused um, in these moments where we kind of really have to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. I think the exciting element of it is just to, to even imagine to imagine the what's possible when you mm -hmm. unleash the cognitive and creative potential of humanity mm -hmm. at scale we could see i mean you've got obviously the artificial intelligence the impact of collective human intelligence mm -hmm. in terms of what could be created yeah. is astounding right we're all products of our education and this is where we came from. Mm -hmm. But we've been driven into being specialists in something. But we have to become almost generalists and mm -hmm. instill in people cross-fertilization of their, mm -hmm. their learning and, and mm -hmm. stimulate their curiosity mm -hmm. to see connections where they wouldn't otherwise have seen them. Because that's where real, when imagination comes to fruition. Right. And you know you're out in nature, not being stuck in a in a cubicle in an office, and mm -hmm. we're able to commune. And mm -hmm. you know it's a it's a wonderful sort of utopian future. It just seems. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing: not enough people not, are painting it. I know, but that's why. And uh, we don't take the time to pause to reflect no. on it. Um, some of it is driven, but you know, a lot of the future definitions are driven by you know I could create this technology that could solve this mm -hmm. human problem which is brilliant, and, and then we don't think about what, what will be the implication of that. So one example of that would be, and I don't want to name names, but there's an AI that can uh, serve as a first layer uh, therapy session. So you talk to this chatbot, and the chatbot responds to you and uses CBT, um, cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy, to relate to you. In and of itself, it's a beautiful idea, right? But then what happens when we can confide in with a bot more than we can confide in with a human being? I know. And are we, are we sufficiently thinking about those implications, right? Are we sufficiently thinking about what it's like when you feel like you can't feel safe with another human being? Or that we feel cared for, empathetically held by a robot as opposed to human beings? Uh, I don't think there's enough thought relating to that. So the overarching point that I'm trying to make is 
when we are developing these AI technologies is one is understanding the implications for the future of humanity, not just the direct solution that we can offer. The second is there are not enough people painting the beautiful picture of what that humanity could look like. And I believe life follows art. Mm-hmm. I believe we in, inadvertently kind of shape our lives and behaviors towards the images that we're fed. And we're not being fed images around what it could look like. And we're not holding enough time to do that. And we need to. So uh, we need to have more conversations about what that could be so that we can kind of maneuver and shape consciousness and shape uh, projects and behaviors in that direction. I agree. But as you say, we live in the present, and the present is often dealing with the the day-to-day harsh realities that most people, and I come back to the whole thing of companies and governments, and it's, you know, yeah, that's why I say we need collective breathtaking. Yeah. This is a moment. There's no other moment. What are, you, what are we going to do? Postpone it? I know. Uh, or just keep moving in a trance towards this? I think with this idea? one, um, yeah. as Bettina knows and Elaine knows, I can go on for hours talking, mm. and sometimes we have. But I think this is one I'd like to do a follow-up mm. once we take maybe a moment to pause and, and reflect on what we've discussed. And, and I know there's so many things happening here, and but I, I, I know that it would be better informed to have a, a, a more instructed and positive conversation for mm-hmm. a part two. But before we get into the quickfire questions, I just want to ask you my favorite question. If you were given, well, first of all, Yuval Noah Harari, but he talks about the need to switch teaching in the future to the four C's, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity. If you were given the keys to the White House or the mayor's office, what changes would you make uh, to the education system specifically? Mm-hmm education system that would improve the fortunes of the next generation yeah well uh so Yuval and I have very overlapping frameworks (laughs) the future of education has to be around human intelligence Mm -hmm. um and it has to be around and perhaps let me speak more specifically it has to be around cultivating human moral and ethical reasoning and guidelines because at the end of the day we need to champion that for machines machines can't do that for us so they could but it would be algorithmically created. And, um, and morality and ethics is always evolving, so we can't have one standard that works forever. So how do you develop morality and ethics? It starts with uh, insight. It starts with the inner knowing, inner evolution, and emotional literacy, and all of that that comes along with what does it really mean to be human. So we need education to be less about subject matter expertise and more about inner expertise. And social-emotional learning, and all of that stuff that we're talking about, like emotional intelligence, social-emotional learning, conflict resolution, all of those things are part part and parcel to what we need to I do. I think the optimistic and the positive thing, there are a lot of people in the education um, system in different countries talking about this. Mm-hmm. So I think at least there is uh, a recognition, mm-hmm. and, that there, and I know that there are certainly people in the UK um, that are actively trying to drive that as part of policy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's looking good. The, at least the foundations are, are being hopefully being put in place. Can we get to the quick fire questions? Yeah. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Wisdom, compassion, love, and joy. Perfect. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? I don't know that I have a quick fire answer there. Okay. Um, who's made you reevaluate yourself? Many who's, but probably the what's, the moments in time where life felt particularly challenging and uh, moments in time where I felt, okay, this is an invitation to level up. So how do you level up, Caroline? That's nice. Where do you go 
to discover new ideas? Nature. <laughs> and when you need space to think? Nature. Yeah. In the woods. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew, that you, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Who have you met that's most surprised you? Everyone. Okay, that's a nice answer. <laughs> um, okay, this is a good one, because everything you do is related in some way to the impact of technology. How do you keep up with it? By observing. So less about doing it, more about observing it. Okay. Um, we ask the impossible question, and that is, what would your advice be to someone that's just about to graduate or go to study that has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's been told, no, forget it, it's impossible? That their dream and goal and grand ambition is impossible? Mm -hmm. Never listen to anyone. Just listen to your inner workings. Okay. Nothing's ever impossible. I don't, I don't understand. That question just... Yeah. Uh, elicits a visceral reaction uh, for me. As, as it should, yeah. Um, as it should in everyone. But there's a lot of people out there that are naysayers and uh, that... Uh, are, Look, uh, no one ever creates something because everybody agreed with it. No one ever... There's always disagreement. And what you have to come back to is, does it... And I guess that goes back to my the four pillars I just told you. Does it enhance wisdom? Does it enhance compassion? Does it enhance love? And does it enhance joy? Does, if it answers those things, then then you're good to go. Okay. Because radical shapers are not, um, uh, they don't abide to people saying yes or no. They do it because they know it's right. Ah, I like, definitely like that. What's your karaoke, go-to karaoke song? Oh my song? gosh, I have so many. No, you can't, uh, you have to have one. No, Okay, I'll give you three if you want. Yeah. No, okay, no, wait. So Love Shack is one of them. Uh -huh. P-52s. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty fun. Um, I don't know. Lately, there's a ton of great songs lately. That right now I'm blanking out on. Really? Yeah. Okay. I was asked this last night, and I yeah, said, well, it's but I'm like, well, it has to be number one, Bohemian Rhapsody. Number two, Life yeah. on Mars, David Bowie. Number three has to be probably American Pie. Oh, that's good too. Yeah, yeah. Good so you asked me what I can sing. I can sing the Love Shack. I didn't tell you what songs I really love. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say I could sing them either. Trust right, me. Right, right. I've good. done some bad renditions in karaoke bars in Singapore and San Francisco. But, um, what's your favorite Netflix series of recent years or Amazon series? Oh my gosh. So I'm watching Explained, which I think is fascinating. Great, yeah. I love um, Vox, just the the newscast. Mm -hmm. I love um, I love Trevor Noah. Let's see. For f like just last night, I was watching um, Always Maybe, which is a romantic comedy. Um, I love watching comedy shows and comedy skits. Um, obviously, if you you know Black Mirror and all of those a are use, a must yeah. for people in this field. And um, mm. um, what <laughs> book would you like us to offer the listeners with that submit the best comments in the comment section? Okay, I'm going to totally throw you for a curve. I actually think a lot of the work that we need to do is to examine our biases, uh, both gender bias and racial biases, and the nature of those and where they come and understanding each other, so from those places. So one book I'm going to suggest is Invisible Woman. Uh, which is a great account, totally uh, neutral and studied account of how uh, women are just engineered out of society. Um, anyway, this guess, next yeah. book, the other book that I highly recommend is called uh, Between the World and Me from Ta-Nehisi Coates. Oh. Uh, and it's an older book, but it's, it's stunning. It's, um, 
It's stunning. Anything by him is stunning. Yeah, it's incredible. Mm. Okay, that's great. Final question. Mm. Who should we interview next? So if your topics are around serendipity and curiosity, I would want you to, to interview a poet. Poet? Yeah. Can you There's name not enough poetry in the world. Can you tell us who? Well, you remember Tina? Tina <gasps> Kelly? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's a Nobel Prize printer winner. And her work is, is all about serendipity and curiosity. It's about being, and I think she even has it in her bio. It's about being curious about the two-legged people that surround her and trying to see the world in a different different lens. Okay. I think the reason why I think we need, po so we need all kinds of art in business. We don't do sufficient um, merging of art and business. So art teaches us to be human and business teaches us to lead with market values. But market values need to be informed by human values and they're not. So let's bring more art in, hum in business. That's a lovely way to finish. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's we normally so just fun. we normally just finish with a little thank you and a and a summation. Finish by saying thank you and the acknowledgements for clearly um, your humanity oh, and you. your passion to drive a narrative that is not in the public consciousness to the degree that it should be, mm. and also your clarity of vision and your intentionality. Mm. Um, that I think if more people embraced the same sort of your values we would be moving in the right direction and maybe the wrong direction as mm. as a human race um so i'm certainly thank you again and look forward to hopefully part two at some point thank you i'm, I'm deeply humbled by that summary thank you okay well thanks again <laughs> thank you all right just go to itunes spotify stitcher google podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate and if you like the show please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.